we serve a great and a mighty God. Can you all hear me? No. Testing one, two. Testing one, two. Is my pack on? There we go. Did you get me? All right. This morning we are going to be in the book of Luke, and it's our second sermon in the series of Who's Your One? And I see already this morning that many of you, and I've, I've gotten texts all week long from many of you who have said, I mean, the first one I got this week uh, was Monday, and a gentleman wrote me and simply said, he said, Pastor Aaron, he said, I don't normally do this like I should, he said, but already today, he said, I've spoken with two people about the Lord and have been inviting them to church. I know this morning that many of you have told me that uh, you've been praying and you've been seeking and you've been going after the one that God has laid on your heart. And I am grateful, church, that you're not just hearers of the word, but you're doers also. And we have three more weeks of these messages that are going to challenge us about this call that God has placed on our lives to be disciple makers. And I want to be clear from the beginning again today that being disciple makers, it's evangelism and it's discipleship. Churches never should choose between those two things, nor should we put emphasis or overemphasis on one over the other because both of them are completely necessary to the success of a church. If we don't evangelize, then obviously the church begins to decline. And it's not that it's the numbers. It's not that it's the money. It's not that it's the things that we think about. Boy, I hope this doesn't decline in a church. We've got things to pay. Listen, it's about the glory of God. That is the tragedy of us not going out and being faithful witnesses is that we were made to declare God's glory. And when that starts happening or stops happening, listen, in that moment, we cease to fulfill the very purpose for which we were created. It's not about the buildings. It's not about the ministries. It's not about numbers. It's about God's glory. And folks, if we fail to disciple, and I fear that's where most churches are today, that discipleship has become one of those issues that we really just make it about one hour on Wednesday. It's, it's not something we do. It's not something that we are. Instead, it's something that we just attend once a week. It's just another Bible study. Folks, that's not discipleship. Discipleship is life on life. Discipleship means that you love a person so much that not only have you led them to the Lord, but you are determined to see them growing in their faith. You're not satisfied until they know how to pray, until they know how to study their Bible. You're not satisfied until they understand all that it is that Christ has called them to be, equipped them to be. You want them to know their giftedness. You want them to know their place in ministry. You want them to know that they have the greatest call on their life to take the name of Jesus here in this community and around the world. And until we've done that, we haven't really made disciples. So, folks, both of these things are extremely important. And what I want to encourage you with today is that you have to make a decision along with me whether we're going to cheerlead discipleship, whether we're going to cheerlead mission, or whether we're going to get in the game. Because, folks, there's a difference between those two things. When we consider our lives, we have to ask ourselves the question, am I in the game or am I on the sidelines? We all love to be part of a church that's doing great things. Amen? 
We love to see souls saved. We love when we see people join this body and they're being discipled and they're thriving. We love to see the missions that's going on around the world. We love to be part of a church doing great things for the kingdom of God. Yet somehow, in every church, and this one is no different, many of us have missed our part in it. It's easy for us to say we're part of something great and not actually use our gifts to be part of that movement. You see, church, we can love the idea of missions. We can come and lay hands on folks going to do missions. We can give to missions. And folks, I want you to hear me. Giving and praying are two important aspects of mission. But every single one of us have a call beyond praying and giving. It's not like the Lord wants us to choose between those things. Will I give? Will I go? Will I pray? You know what the answer to all three of those is? Yes. Why? Because there's billions of people in this world that need to know and understand the gospel of Jesus Christ, that need to come to saving faith in Christ. We can love the idea of missions without ever having a personal role in it. We can do more than cheerlead, church. We have to contribute. In Luke chapter 5, we see, as other books of the Bible will show us, that there were four men. That so loved their one. Because remember, we've been talking about the fact, and, and from J.D. Greer and, and, and from Johnny Hunt, they've been talking to you in those videos that we watched the last few weeks, that while we talk about billions, that's so overwhelming. How do we reach billions? They've told you, and I concur with them, that it begins with one. We can't get consumed with the number billions and think, well, because I have no concept of how to reach all that are lost in all the places of the world, they said, begin with one. It begins with one. And in this story, there were four friends that loved one of their friends. And they loved him so much that they did whatever it took to get that friend to the feet of Jesus. That it didn't matter the obstacle. There was no problem with their expectation. They knew that their friend's life could absolutely be changed. They were men on a mission because they were expectant that if Christ can see our friend, if Christ can meet our friend, if Christ can see the needs and condition of this friend, then you know what? Jesus has the power to heal and to save. And so no matter what the obstacle, they were determined to get that friend in front of Jesus. And Jesus did more for their friend than they even asked. They did, he did more for their friend than they could have ever imagined. And I want to share this story with you. Many of you have known it all your life. Some of you in here today may be hearing this for the first time. But what a beautiful story. In verse 17 of chapter 5, it says, One day he was teaching, he being Jesus. There were some Pharisees. There were some teachers of the law sitting there, and they'd come from every village in Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was present for him to perform healing. Some men were carrying 
on a bed a man who was paralyzed. And they were trying to bring him in and set him down in front of him, but not finding any way to bring him in because of the crowd. They went up on the roof, and they let him down through the tiles with his stretcher into the middle of the crowd in front of Jesus. Listen to this. Seeing their faith, he said, friend, your sins are forgiven you. The scribes and the Pharisees began to reason, saying, Who is this man who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? But Jesus, aware of their reasonings, answered and said to them, Why are you reasoning in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins have been forgiven you, or to say, Get up and walk? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, Get up, pick up your stretcher, and go home. Immediately he got up before them, picked up what he had been lying on, and went home glorifying God. And they were all struck with astonishment and began glorifying God. And they were filled with fear, saying, We have seen remarkable things today. I want to share four things with you today in light of eternity. Because when we talk about who's your one, we're talking about the eternity of a soul. I want to let the weight of that sit on you for a moment. We're not talking again about bumping numbers. We're not talking about budgets. We're not talking about buildings. We're talking about the souls of men, whether or not they will stand in the presence of God in heaven or whether they will sit under his judgment condemned in hell forever you see we talk so much about heaven we forget about hell we forget about words like torment utter darkness Weeping and gnashing of teeth. Fire that is never quenched. And I want you to think about the souls in your life right now that you know that is their destiny without Christ. Because, folks, as we talk about this, we have to think in light of eternity. We're not just wanting them to have their best life now. We're not just wanting them to be happy in this life. We're not just wanting to fix a marriage. Or we're, not just want now, and we're not wanting even to see them free of addiction. It's not, that's not the only thing that we are trying to do in people's lives to make their life better. We want them to be transformed through a personal relationship with Christ so that they don't have to pay the price for their sin when it has already been paid through the blood of Jesus. In light of eternity, let me tell you what we have to do today. Number one, we have to live on mission. 
You see, it's mission that drives us. All of us in some form or fashion, some of you may already have a mission statement that you've put up at your house. Some families are that on the ball. They have something that ties them together that sets their focus. I mean, some people I've seen them write and do beautiful artwork that they hang in their home that's about mission. Because, folks, I'm telling you, whether you realize it or not, you are on a mission There's something that drives you. There's something that has your attention. There's something that without completing it, you feel incomplete. And whether or not you verbalized your mission, understand that that mission is what drives us in this life. It drives us as individuals. It drives us as a culture. And you see, when you have a mission... Nothing stops you. I want to ask you this morning, what is your mission? Because for some of us, if we're honest, we're going to have to say things like, career is my mission. And nothing will get in the way of that. Not my family. Not my quiet time. Not service in the church, not missions. Nothing's going to get in the way of the fact that I've got a career that I am trying to build. For some of us, it's money. For some of us, it's athletics. But folks, make no mistake... We all have a mission. For these men that day, you know what their mission was? You know what they cared about more than anything? You know all that consumed them that day was that they had a friend that needed to see Jesus. And that was the mission that drove them. You say, well, what's the mission of Jesus? Because if I'm following Jesus, that should give us a hint into what our mission should be. Well, let me give you the words of Jesus. Jesus shared the heart of those men. Because what Jesus' mission was on this earth, he made it very clear. He said, I have come. The reason I'm here, the reason I left heaven, took on flesh, came to earth, the reason I did that is because I am seeking and saving those that are lost. Now let that sink in a second. How can we be following Jesus and that not be our mission? It's not possible. Because to fail to see that mission... To love the church, to to love the body of Christ, to desire to see more come into that body by sharing and declaring the glory of God, by seeing men saved from hell in a relationship with Christ, forgiven of their sins. If that doesn't drive us at all, if that has nothing to do with the mission of our life, I'm telling you, you're not following Jesus like you think you are. Because that was his mission. It's why he condescended himself. It's why he took on flesh. It's why he dwelt among us. It's why he was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And Jesus made clear, and if you say, well, that was Jesus' mission, why does that have to be mine? Because Jesus then turned around and by his very word said, and just as he has sent me, guess what he also does? He sends you. And so, folks, I want to ask you today, what drives you? What are you living for? 
Because mission defines the basics and essentials of who we are and, and what we do. It's why companies develop mission statements because they know without a statement of mission, they're going to creep off course. They're not going to stay on the thing that they are supposed to be staying on. And all of a sudden they find out that the company isn't becoming and doing what it was created to do. I can share with you some Instagram. You know what their mission statement is? To capture and share the world's moments. And they do it. Microsoft, at its founding, said their mission was a computer on every desk and in every home. And they did anything and everything to make that happen. And guess what? It has. Google said to organize the world's information and to make it universally accessible and useful. Nike said to bring inspiration and innovation to every athlete in the world. And you see, these companies have been able to do it because it's been their focus. It's what they live, eat, breathe. It's their purpose. It's the very reason why they exist, and nothing deters them from accomplishing the mission that was set before them. And folks, you have to answer the question, what is your mission? I want to ask you today, do you have kingdom dreams? Or are all your dreams tied to this life? Because ultimately, that's the question. We all have dreams. We all have mission. We all are going to, to live for something. But the question ultimately becomes, do we live for this kingdom or the kingdom to come? We have to have Jesus' mission of saving the lost. And folks, I know that's overwhelming, but I think I agree with one pastor. As he said, if the size of your vision doesn't intimidate you, it's probably insulting to God. Did you hear that? God actually likes when we're dependent. God actually likes when we're looking at a mountain and we say, without God, I can't move it. God actually likes to put us in a place where we say, I can't. God, only you can. And I'm telling you, the mission of your life, if it's something that you can reach, it's probably not what the Lord has for you. Seek what God has for us. Number two, not only must we live on mission, but in light of eternity, we also have to live expectantly. See, that's what I love about these friends. Is they were determined to get their friend to Jesus because they believed their friend could be healed. They believed that Jesus was the only hope for their friend. This guy had been paralyzed and no doctors had been able to help. No medicines have been able to help. Everybody looked at this man and said, this man is completely without hope. But that was until Jesus came. Now, how do we know that everybody knew about Jesus? Because the religious leaders, it says, from Galilee, from Judea, from Jerusalem, there was quite the buzz about this Jesus because he spoke with such authority, because of the way he loved people, because of his ability to speak. And people were healed. He could speak, and the seas and the waves were calmed. 
And they came to believe that in a world where there seems to be no hope, suddenly hope showed up. And their faith and their belief was so strong that Jesus could heal that they picked their friend up who had no way to get to Jesus himself, and guess what they did? They made sure there was a way. Now, folks, that's what evangelism is for most of us. It is us making sure that there is a way for every person to hear the name of Jesus. If you're waiting for the world to walk through these back doors, guess what? It's not going to happen. That's why Jesus didn't say, stay in the church and make disciples. What did he say? He said, go. Which means in sports term, this is the huddle, and the game is actually played where? Yeah, it's outside. See, we think the game is played on Sundays. The game isn't played on Sundays. This is where hopefully we're inspired. This is where hopefully we're encouraged. This is where we hear the voice of God telling us who we are and who he is and how it is that we should live. And when we hear the voice of God, we say what to him? Yes. Remember I said that's how easy discipleship is, that when you hear the voice of God and you hear his words, learn to say yes and walk in his ways. And folks, I'm telling you, God has clearly given us a mission. We know, if we're believers, that Jesus Christ is the only hope. And what are we doing to make sure that every person has the opportunity to be at the feet of Jesus? You see, for some of you, you've got friends that you think, well, I mean, and really, that may be where the, the, the problem begins. Do you live expectantly? Number one, do you believe that there's people in your life that, you know, they're so hard-headed, they're so frustrating, they seem so lost? Do you have people like that in your life? That you think to yourself, I don't know if God can save them. I think they're too far gone. I don't think they can be forgiven. I don't know that they can be set free. I don't know. Listen, number one, you've got to believe. You've got to learn as a believer to live expectantly. There is no one that Jesus Christ can't save. The reason so many people are so lost is because they are so without hope because no one's carried them to the feet of the master. That's all that stands between them and transformation. Here's what I believe, and this is why we should live expectantly. Because you know what Jesus said as he looked at the world? He walked around, and, and imagine Jesus just seeing this beautiful wheat field. And it's ready to harvest. And you know what he says to his disciples? These are the souls of men. God has been working. You see, you may not realize this. It, God has gone before us and he works. And he moves. And you know what he says to us? He says, the fields are wide unto harvest. You see, the reality is we can plant seeds and we can water seeds, but what can we never do? What can we never do, church? We can never make them grow. But who makes them grow? God does. 
And God says, the fields are wide unto harvest. I'm moving. I'm stirring. You know what the Bible actually says? That the Spirit of God is moving around this world and He is convicting men, women, boys and girls. He's convicting them of sin. He's convicting them of righteousness. He's convicting them of the judgment to come. And you know what Jesus says? Man, look out into the fields. They are wide unto harvest. You see, there's nothing wrong with the harvest. And actually, when Jesus said to pray, what did he tell us to pray for? I mean, look, folks, I'm not going to tell you don't not pray for your lost friends. But I want to go ahead and let you in on something. Jesus cares more about them than you already do. You're not having to go, hey, Jesus, i got this friend over here that's really screwed up, and, and I need you to help him. He doesn't need you to tell him. Because guess what he already knows? Hey, you got a friend over here that's really screwed up and needs Jesus. He already knows. You don't have to change God's heart to want to love someone, to reach someone, to care for someone. Jesus, that's why he said, pray to the Lord of the harvest, not for those lost souls. What did he say? Pray for laborers. Because you know what's keeping men in their lost condition? A lack of laborers. Let that sink in a second. You know why we're scared to pray for our lost friends? Is because we know darn good and well if we're believers that the answer to their issues in their life is probably you. Being faithful to Jesus. <laughs> and if you start praying for your lost friends, let me what God, I can already tell you what God's going to say. Good, now you're where I am. I've been waiting for you to get to this place. Now go talk to them. Go preach the word. That's what Jesus will say to us. And do you live expectantly that God can save and does save? Do we believe that he's the only hope? Therefore, just like if we had the cure for cancer, we wouldn't hold it. We'd go share it. If we had the means to rescue someone from a fire, wouldn't you run in there and go pull them out? Well, folks, we have the answer to the greatest need of mankind, the forgiveness of sins. We can rescue men and women, boys and girls from hell through the power of the gospel if we share it. They believed so much that Jesus could do it, they were willing to take risks to see the outcome. Now let that sink in a second. You see, when we are expectant, we take risks. That's probably the only time we will take a risk. Is when there's some level of expectancy. When we truly believe that God will be faithful, it will drive us to be faithful. When we really contemplate that Jesus says things like, you know what? When you need the right words, where are they going to come from? He says the Holy Spirit. And we know he's working in the hearts of men. We know that there's power in the gospel. It's why Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why? Because it is the power of God unto salvation. It's not you. You're not the power of God unto salvation. It's the words that you speak. It's you simply declaring Jesus Christ, what he's done, how he died for us, was buried and rose again. And when we share the gospel, when we tell the story of Jesus, people are saved. 
They had an expectation that led them to confident action. It's why they made the journey. It's why when they looked at the crowds and saw that I don't even know if we can get this man to Jesus. They got to the third point. In light of eternity, we have to overcome all obstacles. Now, folks, let me go ahead and tell you. Anytime you want to serve God in his kingdom, there are going to be, guess what? Obstacles every time. Not some of the time, not part of the time, every time. Because we have an adversary, don't we? And as much as Jesus Christ wants to save souls, the devil and demons want to see souls condemned in the same way that they are. And I want you to know that when you get involved with kingdom work, we're going to have obstacles. But the question is, are we willing to do away with our excuses? Because we must. If obstacles are what keep us from doing God's will, then let me tell you something. We're never going to do God's will. These men, they got there before Jesus, and they were expecting, and they were on mission, and they hit an obstacle. They physically couldn't get their friend to Jesus. The crowds were so pressed, they couldn't get the body into the doorway, and so they took matters into their own hands. You know what they did? They went to the roof. All of these homes had roofs, usually where they would go out and they could sit in the evenings, or they could sit out in the early mornings. It was almost like a patio on the top of many of these homes, there were stairwells that went up. They did the hard work of lifting their friend up that stairwell, which probably wouldn't have been easy on its own. And if they couldn't get through the front door, guess what they were going to do? I want you to think about this for a second. They snatched someone's roof off. Now, I don't know if that was popular or not. I don't know about you, if my front door was locked and you couldn't get in for Bible study and you came through my roof, I'm going to be upset a little bit. <laughs> but it didn't matter the obstacle. You know what they did? They literally, I think this is the first instance in the Bible of what we call a vandalism. <laughs> you know, when you write Jesus saves on things that ain't yours, you know, that kind of stuff. But right here, they did what it took. And they literally ripped through this guy's roof and they lowered down their friend right to the feet of Jesus. Was it costly? Yeah, somebody had to pay for that roof. Doubt it was popular. But I will tell you this, if we're going to start doing ministry the way that God wants us to do it, we're going to have to start being persistent. My dad, it took seven times from Adela Baptist Church to knock on his door before he ever really let them in and lead him to Jesus Christ. And I can assure you, all six of those times before, he said, please don't come back. But you know what they did? They persistently came back. I had youth workers in my life that, listen, I made them absolutely miserable. And every time we'd go on a trip, I can tell you, I mean, I was thinking to myself, if I were them, I wouldn't invite me. In fact, I was trying to live my life in such a way to guarantee that they would never what? 
that they never would invite me. And yet, no matter what I did, they loved me, and they persistently pursued me. There was a gentleman, you've heard his name, Ron Lasseter. That guy, I'm telling you, when I, when I get to heaven, I'm so great. I can't wait to see him again. Because when I was a teenager, he was the guy that would keep looking at me and saying, Aaron, one day you're going to surrender your life to Jesus Christ. And I believe one day he's going to use you in a huge way. I think you might even be a preacher one day. And I thought, I will prove you wrong. That was the furthest thing from my mind, the furthest thing from my heart. I didn't want to be at that camp. I didn't want to hear about Jesus. I didn't want to open my Bible. I didn't want to pray. And who is this freak looking at me telling me what God's going to do? And he persistently pursued me, made sure I got on every trip, usually tucked me in right under his wing so I could only act so stupid. But when I gave my heart and life to Christ, you know who I ran to? Ron. Because he embodied Jesus for me. He was seeking and saving that kid that was lost. And folks, we have to be persistent. We have to be creative in the way that we do ministry and the way that we think through. You know, one of the things I love about Hepzibah is you do allow us to be creative. It was not easy to get here. But now that we are here, I love serving a church that's willing to think outside the box and do whatever it takes to get any place in the world to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. And these men were creative. I mean, who would have thought, let's just go rip the roof out. But they were persistent. They were creative and they were willing to sacrifice. And that's what we have to be. Love for people has to conquer our fear. Fear is one of the greatest excuses that we use for why we don't witness. But love for people has to conquer it. And folks, I want you to get past this idea. How many of y'all know this Christian terminology of, well, you know, if God opens the door, I'll walk through it. Anybody ever say that? Raise your hand. Don't lie about it. If nobody raises their hand, I'm going to call you all a bunch of liars. We're going to start over. We're going to start a sermon all over. How many of you have ever said that? I'm waiting for God to open a door. Let me tell you something. I've said it, okay? I'm raising my hand with you. Because that is our way, really, of saying, God, I want you to make it real easy for me. If it just happens, then it'll just happen. Folks, God's not walking around just saying, I will open every door for you. I want you to know the Apostle Paul, think about when he says, I was beaten. Does that sound like an open door? I was flogged. I was imprisoned. I was stoned. Does that sound like an open? I mean, is that what we would describe as, you know, God, I think you opened this door for me. Thank you. No, 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 no. You see, sometimes doors are closed, and you know what God wants us to do? He wants us to kick that door down. Because for many of us, you know what we do? Because it's not convenient, because it's not easy, because it isn't costing us nothing, we think, oh, that must be God's open door. Folks, following Jesus is none of those things. If that's what you think following Jesus is, you're wrong. And you need to rethink the gospel and your call to ministry. 
Because, folks, I'm going to tell you, we need to kick down some closed doors. Because I want you to think this morning, what does it take for you to say, forget it, it's too hard. I guess it's not the Lord's will. For some of you, it could be just missing Monday night football. I, I, you know, Saturdays are just a day of, you know, it's the only day I get to, it's the only day I get to, you know, sit around and do nothing. Well, I'd like to go on mission, but you know, I, I mean, I only get two weeks vacation, and Jesus, Jesus wouldn't ask me to take a week of vacation. That's crazy talk. Is it? You see, that sounds good in front of us, but if we were trying to sell that to Jesus, we'd be ashamed we wouldn't even say it. I've known friends that wouldn't go into ministry because they didn't want to lose Sundays. I mean, that means I can't go on vacation when I want to go on vacation, go to the races when I go on vacation, go do this when I... What are we doing? What does it take to get you to say, forget it? It's too hard. It's not the Lord's will. I will say this. Ministry that costs nothing likely accomplishes nothing. And that is on a corporate level as a church. And it's on an individual level for a believer. If you're looking for a ministry that costs nothing, if that's why you're saying no to children's ministry, I mean, you realize, I mean, we're trying, you see how we're trying everything just to get people to teach children's ministry, to disciple the first, I mean, if we ain't going to disciple nobody else, who should we be discipling? I mean, wouldn't you think we'd want to disciple our own children? How, church, how could we have to beg to fill children's ministry? Well, I need Sunday school time with, you know, I just, you know, I'm, I've been a Christian 40 years and I just can't leave my Sunday school class. Please. Do something. Contribute something. Well, you know, Terry says you have to come on Wednesday for an hour for teacher training. And I mean, that's just crazy. Are, are our children worth it? Hello? I mean, I put out an eye test this week on Facebook. Did y'all see that? It was not red, it was blue. What, what are we doing? What are we doing going around the world and we can't fill the slots for our children? I'm asking, I'm, I'm going to ask one more time, then I'm going to go in here flipping chairs next week. Terry ought to have no problem filling every slot that we have for our own children. Get off your rear end. Somebody stand up. Have courage. Let it cost you something. It may cost you Wednesday. It may mean you got to get out of the Sunday school class you've been in all your life. Get up and serve these children. Disciple them. Win them to Christ. And my fear is Terry's going to go another whole week and it's going to be, well, you know, nobody called again. We've done everything we know. To do it, church. 
If ministry is costing you nothing, it's accomplishing nothing. Are we willing to give of our time, our money, our convenience, our, our peace of mind? And lastly, we have to trust Jesus to move and to save. You see, these men weren't even dreaming big enough. It's like I told you, most of us don't dream big enough. We don't think about how God could use us if we would just surrender ourselves. We're really willing to settle for the mundane rather than see the miraculous. That's what most of us, that's how most of us live. We're, we're confident and comfortable with a mediocre Christianity. And we're missing the miraculous. Folks, again, it says 96% of us have never really truly witnessed to someone and given them the gospel. So that means most of us in this room never know the joy of seeing someone go from death to life. People ask me all the time, how do you keep doing what you do? That, <laughs> that's it. All that happens at a church, all the craziness can be erased when a 70-year-old woman runs up and says, I gave my life to Christ. I was that one. Because actually I was having a really bad week and I really felt bad because I'd been grumbling and complaining to the Lord about how rough my last two weeks were and I was just sick of this and that and God, I just, I don't know what you want from me and I was complaining. You know, when that little old lady gave her life to Christ, let me tell you something, I went to my truck and I was apologizing to the Lord. Because he does what he always does. He, he saves if we're faithful. I want you to think about who played that role in your life that led you to Jesus. Somebody led you to Jesus. Somebody loved you through all your mess and through all your unwillingness. Who is that person? And don't you want to be that for somebody else? While these men thought they were going to give their friend an external blessing of being able to walk again, Jesus gave so much more. Out of the gate, he said, your sins are forgiven you. Why? Because of the great faith that they had. That man wanted to see Jesus. That man's friends wanted to see Jesus. He wanted to be healed. They wanted to see him healed. How do we know that they had faith? Because they did whatever it took to get that man to the feet of Jesus. And Jesus didn't just heal his legs. He transformed his heart. And he transformed his mind. And you know what it actually did? It did what it always does when we truly are saved. It propelled his feet to go and glorify Jesus. And no doubt he did what so many others did. He said, I've met the Messiah and you need to meet him too. As Kevin comes this morning, I want to just read this to you. I read it years ago in college. I was reminded of again studying for the sermon. Daryl Robinson in a book called People Sharing Jesus, he, he wrote a little story in here, and it makes a point that I want you to get this morning as we close. He said, now it came about that a group existed who called themselves fishermen. And lo, there were many fish in the waters all around. In fact, the whole area was surrounded by streams and lakes filled with fish, and the fish were hungry. And week after week, month after month, year after year, those who called themselves fishermen, they met in meetings, and they talked about their call to fish. 
the abundance of fish and how they might go about fishing. Year after year, they carefully defined what fishing means. They defended fishing as an occupation. They declared that fishing is always to be a primary task of fishermen. Continually, they searched for new and better methods of fishing and for new and better definitions of fishing. They created witty slogans. They displayed them on big, beautiful banners. These fishermen built large, beautiful buildings called fishing headquarters. The plea was that everyone should be a fisherman and every fisherman should fish. One thing they didn't do, however, they didn't fish. In addition to meeting regularly, they organized a board to send out fishermen to other places where there were many fish. The board hired staff and they appointed committees and held many meetings to define fishing, to defend fishing, to decide how and what new streams should be thought about. But the staff and committee members, they never fished. Large, elaborate, expensive training centers were built whose original and primary purpose was to teach fishermen how to fish. Over the years, courses were offered on the needs of fish, the nature of fish, where to find fish, the psychological reactions of fish, and how to approach and feed fish. Those who taught had doctorates in fishology. The teachers, though, did not fish. They only taught fishing. Year after year, after tedious training, many graduated were giving fishing licenses. They were sent to do full-time fishing, some to distant waters filled with fish. Many who felt the call to be fishermen responded. They were commissioned. They were sent to fish. But like the fishermen back home, they never fished. They engaged in all kinds of other occupations. Some felt their job was to relate to fish in a good way so the fish would know the difference between good and bad fishermen. Others felt simply letting the fish know they were nice, land-loving neighbors, and how loving and kind they were was enough. Now, it's true that many fishermen sacrificed and put up with all kinds of difficulties. Some lived near the water. They bore the smell of fish every day. They received the ridicule of some who made fun of their fishermen's clubs and the fact they claimed to be fishermen, yet never fished. Imagine how hurt they were one day when a person suggested that those who don't fish were really not fishermen. No matter how much they claim to be, yet it did sound correct. Is a person a fisherman if year after year he never fishes? More plainly stated, is one truly following if he never fishes? Do you hear the, do you hear the call of God on your life? You're every bit the minister that I am. You're every bit the missionary that I am. You've been called to shepherd souls just like me, just in a different context and in a different way. Father, we thank you for your word. It challenges us. And Lord, I pray today that if they haven't decided who their one is, Lord, that they would in this moment. For Lord, time is fleeting and these people around us need to know the love of Jesus. So, Father, I pray today as we worship, Lord, that you would speak to us. Convict our hearts through these messages about the calling that you've placed on us. And, Father, may you forever change us. Lord, we want to be fishermen in more than word, but in deed. And so, Father, as we go into this invitation time, if some still need to put that name on that wall, Lord, if they are committed to truly reach them, 
then I pray that today would be the day more names go on that wall to be prayed over and this week to be sought and to share the gospel. So, Father, stir our hearts for the lost. In Jesus' name, amen.